when you do for a beer. Bush does it. You can't say beer better than Bush. Boy, ain't that the truth. How can they miss with that target advertising? Yabba-dabba-doo. Right on target, Fred. When you do for a beer, Bush does it. Oh, there's a lot of Bush. Why are you cutting stones? There's an old story about a man who happens upon three stone cutters. The man stopped and asked the three stone cutters what it was they were doing. The first stone cutter took a pause and said, Well, I'm cutting stones. I'm doing my job. I'm making a living. Then the second stone cutter didn't bother stopping. He said, I'm a craftsman. I'm doing the best crafted stone cutting in the entire country. And then the man turned to the third stone cutter, who stopped, wiped his brow, walked over to the man and pointed to the distant horizon. And he said, I am building a cathedral. You see, many times in our work, in our lives, we find ourselves as each of these stone cutters. Sometimes a job is just a job, a means to an end. And sometimes we see the craft of what we're doing as more important and perhaps even more enriching than why we're doing it at all. And then finally, yes, there are times where we truly understand the why of what we're doing and we know where our contribution, no matter how small, fits into the larger vision of it. The key is that sometimes, and especially these days, we can get lost. Perhaps surprisingly, one of the worst places that we as content creators can get lost is as that second stone cutter. You see, the first one doesn't care about the vision. That stone cutter is there to simply produce stones and get paid for a hard day's work. But the second, well, that can be deceptive. Because we focus on the craft of each stone, taking the time and the effort to make sure each is polished, crafted, and of exacting specification. Except we can fool ourselves here as the second stone cutter. We can believe that we are actually working towards something, when in fact, all we're doing is polishing stones. And of course, craftsmanship, quality, art, all play a role in what we do in our business lives. But if that focus on work is not in conscious pursuit of building the cathedral, then we may find we are the most skilled, artistic craftsmen in search of a job. So we try to become the third stone cutter, but we may be frustrated. Perhaps the others in our business who are creating the strategies, tactics, decisions, personalities look better to us, more powerful. We may wish we could be them. And that can lead us to another story about another stone cutter, the one who is dissatisfied with himself and his position in life. One day, he passed a wealthy store owner's house. How powerful that merchant must be. He became very envious and wished he could be just like that merchant. And to his great surprise, he magically became the merchant, enjoying more luxuries and power than he'd ever imagined. But he was envied and detested by those that were less wealthy than him. Soon the king passed by, accompanied by attendants and escorted by a soldier. Everyone, no matter how wealthy, had to bow before the procession. How powerful that official is, the stonecutter thought. I wish I could be that high official. And then he became the king, carried everywhere, his embroidered sedan chair, feared and hated by all the people around. And it was a hot summer day, and so the king felt very uncomfortable. And then a huge black cloud moved between him and the sky and the sun and cooled him. And he thought, how powerful that storm cloud is. I wish I could be a cloud. And then he became a cloud, flooding the fields and villages and shouted at by everyone. But soon he found out that he was being pushed away by some other great force and realized that it was the wind. How powerful that wind is, he thought. I wish I could be the wind. And so he became the wind, blowing tiles off the roofs of houses, uprooting trees, feared and hated by all below him. But after a while, he ran up against something that would not move, no matter how forcefully he blew a huge towering rock. How powerful that rock is, he thought. I wish I could be that rock. And so he became the rock, more powerful than anything else on earth. But as he stood there, he heard the sound of a hammer pounding a chisel into the hard surface and felt himself being changed. What could be more powerful than I, the rock, he thought. And he looked down and saw far below him the figure 
of a stonecutter. And that's the theme of our show today, understanding your power that you have now and what you can do. Why are you cutting stones? Hopefully, it's to realize more of who you are and to realize that no matter where you sit, you can choose to cut stones or build cathedrals. The power is all within you. And now it's time for me to cut on out of here and take a cut at our show. We've got a cutting-edge hour plan that's cut from the same cloth as the stuff we're leaving on the cutting room floor. We'll cut through the red tape and cut to the chase as we get to the clear-cut news and views. Our rants and raves cut both ways, of course, and we'll cut it close to get in under the hour. We hope we cut the mustard and that nobody cuts the cheese, of course. We're cutting it close here. You ready to cut up? Well, then, let's roll. For your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with this old marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 203 of PR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, October 2nd, 2017. And first and foremost, our hearts and prayers are with those in Las Vegas. It's always difficult to do shows about trivial things like marketing and content and all the nonsense we cover when these kinds of things happen. But we will move forward, and we will move forward together and with love. And so our hearts and prayers with all of those whose friends, family, loved ones are in Las Vegas or are affected by the terrible happenings there. And with that, we're moving on. And with me, as always, is my co-host, my colleague, my friend, and the architect, of the Content Marketing Cathedral, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? Oh, the the Content Marketing Cathedral. You cathedral. got my attention. Yeah, the architect of the cathedral. Absolutely. Mm. Well, you know, it's a it's an interesting theme that we have this week um, about stone cutters and uh, those that cut stone. A couple of little parables I told in the intro this week. This is, sounds like a very spiritual opening episode. So I, you know, it's interesting. It's, it, it you know, obviously uh, <laughs> lots and weird things going on in the yeah. world right now. And it's sometimes fun to crawl into our little blanket of content marketing nonsense and just sort of pretend like the world doesn't exist for a little while. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of an exploration, if you will. Yeah. I, I've been actually exploring, uh, my relationship with the Cleveland Browns recently. I- <laughs> And whether or not that's a healthy relationship. Well, here's the thing. You, you, at least yours aren't, you know, your team isn't like breaking promises, right? I mean, they, they've always promised to be kind of bad. <laughs> but, but my team was supposed to be actually good this year and is stinking up the field. Are you kidding me? If we were two and two, the Browns were two and two, they'd be holding a parade right now. <laughs> Downtown Cleveland. It's weird because, uh, you yeah. know, we were all, I was with... The Kozaks, our friends, and and uh, my wife, and I, I was looking at the scoreboard, and it's it's thirty one to nothing that we're losing. It was right. it, and it was worse than that. It was absolutely worse than that. And then the scoreboard comes up, and the the Indians, Cleveland Indians, are leading three to nothing. And I'm like, I can't believe the Cleveland Indians are going to outscore the Cleveland Browns today. Right? There's just a problem with that. Now they ended up scoring seven points in garbage time, but still, it was a it's thing. It's bad. It's yeah. bad. It's bad. If Moneyball so. is not working in Cleveland, apparently. No, no, no. There's no kind of ball working right now <laughs> at all. But but the good the good news is, uh, you yeah. know, Cleveland Indians uh, made it to the playoffs. And how, about, be, how about that? They'll be starting this week, so I'm all in, you know, on my baseball One hundred and Was it 102 games in the process, I think? 102 yes. games, second yeah. most in franchise history behind the 111 they won in 1954. And I knew that without watching the news, by the way. That's, that, that's I know how my much baseball. Of a fan you are. I know my baseball. Say, 111 in 1954. They won 100 games in the shortened 144 game season in 1995, and this year they win 102. So, congratulations to that team. Very, very exciting. So, yeah, there absolutely. You go. So, no more absolutely. talking sports. I think that we <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll leave that. <laughs> we'll leave that for for some other time. So, a couple a couple quick announcements to go through. Top of the show. 
Uh, just a reminder that uh, the Content Marketing World videos are available for purchase. There's a hundred of the best content Video. marketing presentations you will ever see. You Video. can go to CMI, <laughs> cmi.media slash video17. Use the coupon code CMIFRIENDS100, all caps, CMIFRIENDS100, to save $100 off of all the amazing sessions at Content Marketing World for a limited time. At the end of the month, this won't be available. So make sure you go to contentmarketingworld.com or cmi.media slash video17. And video. then we have to announce yeah. we've got our eight-city world tour. It's not a world We're tour. We're going on tour. It's just in the United States. But we call it the Content Marketing World <laughs> Tour of the Content Marketing Masterclass Series. How many years have we been doing this? I think this is six. Is this the sixth year? I believe this is six. This is the it most cities. Be, most yeah. cities. Oh, definitely the most cities. Yeah. So the, the cities, here you go. Starting November 6th, we'll be in Boston, then the New York, D.C., Seattle, San Francisco, Chicago, Atlanta, and we will end up December 8th in Austin. If you would like to come see us, we would love to see you there. We will actually both be there. Both Robert and I will actually be in those cities. You can go to Content Marketing C-O-N-F. That's contentmarketingconf.com. You can get all the agenda, all the amazing things. Basically, Robert, as always, you put together an amazing agenda around building a content marketing strategy and focusing on audiences, and and I'll be there as a comic relief more than anything else, but I will <laughs> be, be there. Fun. I have it's a little presentation. Be a yeah, it'll be yeah. it'll be fun. But we'd love to see you there. So make sure you go to contentmarketingconf.com. Absolutely, absolutely, and of course we have our wonderful sponsor. Oh, geez, I, how could I forget? You know, I love I mean, this program. Yeah, uh, so it's H- fantastic. Hrefs is is helping us with this program. First of all, thanks to Hrefs, powerful SEO tool. Many amazing tools for content marketers. If you're looking to grow your traffic from Google, you can find out what people are searching for in Google uh, so that you can create content around the most popular search queries. You can discover content that gets the most shares and earns the most backlinks. Uh, You can easily research your competitors and find out which content brings them the most traffic from Google, all that good stuff. So here's the exclusive opportunity for PNR podcast listeners. Any listener that tweets using the hashtag thisoldmarketing, our regular hashtag now through October 28th will be entered into a drawing to win an annual HRS account plus a signed copy of our new book killing marketing signed copy I mean these are very rare we actually had to be in the same room to do this we signed it at the same very time true. we will sign it for you and one randomly selected participant will be drawn each week and four winners in total. And I think we're drawing our, our first winner coming up this week. And then we'll draw one in the next three weeks. So use the hashtag this old marketing now between uh, now through October 28th. And we would love to give you this amazing exclusive signed <laughs> copy, which is probably worth just a few dollars less than if you bought it on Amazon or Barnes that is correct. That is correct. It's discounted. It's because it's got the signatures in it. <laughs> you can use it as a doorstop. You can do all kinds of wonderful things with it, but it will be signed. So thanks to HREFs for doing this fun little exercise with us. So absolutely really, really good stuff. Absolutely. All right. So let's, let's move on to the top of the show here and let's get to our quick hit segment where we talk about all of the things in the world in terms of marketing and advertising and all of those kinds of things that we think you should be paying attention to. Um, And so let's see, quickly here with our first story, and this is something that comes courtesy of the Wall Street Journal and is by definition the things that we would cover in quick hits. It was last week was Ad Week in New York, and it's a wonderful sort of roundup post of everything that happened at Ad Week um, and a few fun things for us to talk about. The article opens up by saying, good morning. Well, we did it. We got through another advertising week, um, and we didn't invite Joe Polizzi and Robert Rose. No, sorry, they didn't actually mention that. Um, Their main takeaway, this is an industry that really likes to beat itself up. Again, they haven't listened to our show. Um, You couldn't move for panels on transparency or the lack of it or why the agency model needs to be broken up. But between the doom and gloom, it's worth considering that events like these are probably a lot more interesting now than they were 10 years ago. There's a ton of new technologies to get creative with, different types of companies to tussle with, and a lineup of people on stage is getting more diverse each year. So was there anything in this roundup or anything from Adweek in general that sort of stuck out to you, Mr. Polizzi? Um, 
No, actually, <laughs> there's nothing. We should have called the book Killing Advertising. Then I think yeah. maybe we would have got, maybe, just maybe, maybe. Maybe got an inv- invitation. Maybe got an invitation. Um, so there's this, in the article, there's this statistic, because uh, there's this whole thing about Snapchat, and Snapchat is doing more, um, it almost looks like product placement or programming within the shows. I can't figure out if they're like going to run ads with like between the shows, or if they've got uh, if they're they're dropping ads during the shows, I can't figure that out yet because I wasn't there. I'm just reading the the commentary here. But what about this statistic that said um, research shows from Oracle that's claiming the video ads seen for less than two seconds drive sales? Yeah, that's I mean, ridiculous. First yeah, that's of all, just, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be in that kind of marketing. I don't want to focus. Like, okay, and can you imagine that meeting? All right, these first two seconds. These are really important seconds. Yeah, exactly. You know that? Okay, Can what are we going to... the creative brief for the two-second ad we're going to run? Okay, the first 30 milliseconds, this is what <laughs> we're going to do. And then the second 45 milliseconds, we're going to do... I mean, are you kidding me? Is that where we've gone? This is where we've dropped what we think of advertising. This is, this is how much we care about consumers, that we're trying to shove in two seconds of something that's going to help drive sales and convince I, ourselves that this is the smart thing to do, right? This is this is what we're convincing ourselves of, is that we're going to spend two seconds. I mean, it's quite literally the the Netflix dung dung, you know, audio logo is two seconds, and that's what we're that's that's what we're trying to fit our creative into. I mean, and then convince ourselves that this is this is the wonderful thing that we should be doing. I just think I like I don't know where the conversations went, but if there were if there was a hearty discussion about what we're going to do in the first two seconds of video, then I'm I'm running away. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Nobody listening to this show should have anything to do with concerning themselves about two seconds of programming. Okay, so that said, the other thing that I thought was really interesting and saddens me, and I wanted to get your take on this, was also that the Wall Street Journal announced that they're shuttering their print publications in Europe and Asia. I, did you did you see this one as you read? Down? I didn't see that one actually. No, I didn't. I didn't catch that one. That was all the way down. I was reading the whole thing because there's a whole yeah. bunch of different things as part of this article that you shared. But um, what do you like? I I really think that we're there were so focused on driving a substantial profit from these print vehicles that we overlook the marketing aspect of them. I think delivering the Wall Street Journal in a printed format in, I mean, because you and I have traveled to Europe and Asia and you, we see the Europe, I see the European version of Wall Street Journal pick it up. A lot of people are paying, a lot of business people are paying attention to it. Same when we travel to Asia. And so they're getting rid of that. They're losing that. And I just think that's a missed opportunity. Um, you know, because I, I get it, right? They're they're not getting the advertising for it. Like a lot of publications are shuttering, but I just think that if they would, Look at the bigger picture and the bigger strategy besides just going line by line to the P&L and saying, oh, well, the print publication, we're not getting a 40% margin on that in Asia and Europe, so we're going to kill it without looking at what the impact might make to a subscriber or to a group of people traveling or whatever the case is, so... I'm off my soapbox there. I just wanted to get your take on it. No, I think it's a, well, it's a good one. I mean, I think there's, there's two issues that, I mean, and I don't know anything about anything when it comes to the deals they have in Europe and Asia, but two things strike me anyways, just as a businessman is that one, just to your point, there's a brand issue here, right? So maybe they're just not finding the brand resonating um, as as much as it might, um, and there are all manner of things that we could talk about there. Not the least of which is the current world of politics and what the world thinks of Wall Street as a brand, generally speaking, New York, the U.S., you know, and all of that. And maybe it's not resonating like it used to in terms of its leadership position in terms of a, a, as a as a brand in in Europe and Asia. And so they're sort of writing that off a bit or finding it more challenging than, than, than they might. The other thing is that strikes me is that this might be a distribution issue rather than a printing issue. Right. So again, I don't, I don't have any detailed or intimate knowledge here, but I wonder if it's just more expensive to get the, get the papers where they need to be, you know, to be, to be purchased. Right. So whether that be train stations or airports or even home delivery or business delivery, I wonder if it's just more, expensive in Europe and Asia these days. And so thus it becomes, it just becomes untenable to do, to do a print edition in those, in, yeah. in those areas. So, you know, that's a, it's a great, I mean, it's a great point. It is very expensive to do it, but I, 
you know, in in my twenty year history in publishing, let me go back a second here, Robert. I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> <laughs> so, as uh, and I was at Penton Media in the year 2000, and you know, 2001 hit, and uh, there was a we all know what happened, and the media industry took a huge hit, and a lot of these amazing brands started to look line item by line item, and say, look, we've got to kill some things, and a lot of them killed their print publications. Uh, basically to go online and to do other things. And they never realized the impact of the print publication and how that's part of an ecosystem for communications. And they killed it. And those publications, for the most part, that killed their print publications were gone in two years. Brands were gone. I'm not saying the Wall Street Journal is going away. I'm thinking, I, I just think that there's, you've, and maybe the Wall Street Journal is not like this, but, but I'm guessing that they probably are where they're looking at, um, They've, you've got accountants in many cases that are running the departments and they got the financial people and they're driving the decisions from the publishers and the editors. And they're saying, look, this is, you got it. We looked at the numbers. It's not profitable. You got to kill it. And there's nobody coming back saying, no, this is, we have to do this because this is why it's important to us doing these five other things. Nobody's there to make that case. They just say, oh, okay, we'll kill it. We'll do something else. And I, it could be the right decision. I'm guessing in this case it's the wrong decision. So I'll just leave it there. What, was there any? <laughs> was there any other thing at, at, as part of Advertising Week? I mean, you know this this you know that whole week better than I do. I mean, what, is there anything that really hits you with this article or anything that you heard going on that? There was a lot. Yeah, there was there was a lot here and there was a lot to chew on. Most of it we've covered ad nauseum on this show. I mean, I'll 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 do I'll pick two things which I really stood out to me in this article and I think are worth paying attention to uh generally speaking, which is one, there's a section of the article that said and and the headline here is such a it's such a wonderful headline. It's like I want to steal this headline so the the fiddler on the spoof Mm-hmm. Headline, so great, so wonderful. Anyway, it's talking about uh, all the ad fraud. And lately, so we've talked a lot on this show about ad fraud and the bots and all the things that are going on. And lately, and there's been a few other stories that we could have actually covered on the show. We're not, but covered F, uh, FT, the Financial Times, and especially had come out with a story on this about domain spoofing, where now what's happening is is that, they're, that these ne'er-do-wells are actually out there putting domain spoofs uh, of, of popular sites out through the ad networks where you're selling inventory of stuff that doesn't exist or it exists on these ghost websites that look like the other sites. Um, and so they're, they're, you know, it's been around for a while, but it's becoming a real headache and a nightmare. Just yet another you know, salvo in the battle going on here. And it's just, I, I wonder to myself how long we're going to just continue to to shoot these things back and forth before we realize that just like you say, you know, going for two second ads isn't, you know, it just isn't worth the effort. You know, it's like, should we continue to do this or should we actually change? Should we actually change into something else? Um, and then I would note the, um, and I, and I'm surprised you didn't actually pick on this being the investor guy that you were was the, um, the Roku, um, which had an amazing first day. Um, 68% jump on their stock on the first day. Um, It's the biggest um, of any U.S. listed IPO this year, which is unbelievable. And it's just a yet another data point in starting to look at those that have the proximity to the viewer. You know, so the the closer you are to the viewer in in terms of capturing who they are, your audience, the more power you have. And Roku as a box in terms of the data that it can capture and what it knows about its audience and, and all of that is is just a huge, powerful, wonderful thing if you're in business. This is, we talked about this on the show, I think it was last week, when we talked about Google buying HTC and getting into the mobile business in a big, bad way. And this is just another another data point there. So those are the two that just jumped out at me as quick hits. Yep. But uh, I mean, there's so much more that we could talk about. The only thing that I would say on the Roku thing, <clears throat> which is great, I think they're I love the company. Uh, Snapchat, Snap was up forty four percent, and uh, that's that's all but gone now. Just just throwing it out there. Yeah, so, no, no, no. You're absolutely what right. We'll that, see what, what happens, happens on a first week IPO. We will see day. what happens. Much right. different. Yes, exactly. So we'll, we'll see. Call what me happens. back in. A, call me back in twelve months. 
<laughs> Fine. I will I will make a prediction here that Roku will keep most of that value. Will keep Ooh, if, if, if I not like add it. To I it. probably would lean with that. I yeah. I, I, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Our second uh, sh- uh, story in the quick hit section is that Google is pulling Amazon Echo, uh, the show, off of YouTube. A big hat tip, uh, by the way, here to a uh, friend and family of the show, Bob Sable, at Bob Sable uh, on the Twitter. Um, and this comes courtesy of TheVerge.com and opens up by saying Amazon and Google are in a not-so-fun fight. Google has apparently decided to stop allowing the Amazon Echo Show to access YouTube. If you ask the smart speaker to show you a YouTube video, it fails. And Alexa just says this, currently, Google is not supporting YouTube on the Echo Show. That seems like a pretty strong thing for a computer to say, so the author asked Amazon about it, and the company issued this fire statement. Uh, It said, Google made a change today around 3 p.m. YouTube used to be available to our shared customers on the Echo Show, and as of this afternoon, Google has chosen not to no longer make YouTube available to the Echo Show without explanation and without notification to customers. There's no technical reason for that decision, which is disappointing and hurts both of our customers. So what say you, Mr. Polizzi? Is this the first sort of shot across the bow of Google and Amazon fighting each other for access to content? You know, I don't even know if this is possible, but is do you think it would be possible that if you searched for a product on Google that they wouldn't show Amazon results? I, I absolutely think it's possible. I think this is exactly what this is. Yeah, that's the first thing I thought of. I said, this is just step one, and this is going to get really ugly. Uh, they're, they're, I mean, look at it, right? They're, this is like Coke versus Pepsi back in the, you know, when they were, re- this is when Coke tried the new formula and Pepsi had Cindy Crawford and all that kind of, this is the same thing, but 10 times worse because these companies are 100 times bigger than those companies. You got that's sim- right. You got similar content, similar products, and besides, the, you know, I'm not going to show this and you're not going to show that. And maybe I'm not. Yeah. I mean, right now on Amazon, I don't think you can buy a Chromecast. So right. there's all re- this is already going on. And I guess my big thought is, all right, well, what does Amazon do then? I think then Amazon, they've already got the platform, right? They've got Prime. They already have content there. Well, if if uh, there's there's the type of content that you would find on YouTube, if I can't get it on you know via YouTube and serve it up in, in our device, our Alexa device, then I'm going to go get it myself. And they're I absolutely think that they're going to start recruit recruiting YouTube stars, other other. Uh, I mean they 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 already do just about everything else. It's already there. They just don't have a lot of the how-to videos and other things that people are searching for, let's say. Because you, you read the article. It said, you know, why would somebody want to look at a YouTube video with their um, whatever the, 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 the best model of Alexa with the video screen that you get? Right. I mean, if you're right. cooking or you're doing something how-to and you need to view it. So Amazon needs to get that content. And if Google's not going to give them that content, where are they going to get it? So right. it's going to be interesting. It is really going to be interesting because I, I I do believe that this is the first shot in what is going to be an ongoing battle. Not just, by the way, not just between Google and Amazon. I mean, that's going to be the watching two, you know, that's Godzilla and King Kong fighting it out in the middle of New York City, right? But, you know, there, this is going to happen at a much smaller scale as well. You know, we're going to see... You know, Verizon and AT&T fight for, you know, Sony content and Disney and, and all, you know, yep. this access to the customer and the content is going to become a huge challenge for all of us because and, – and, 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 and the hard thing is and the challenging thing is and sort of the takeaway for us as marketers is it's going to make it even more difficult to know where to place bets. Because if, you know, for example, if you're a YouTube creator, you have to be thinking twice now, like, well, if, you know, if this, if, if, if this, you know, voice search really takes off, man, that's going to make it really hard with, you know, to, to, to get to Amazon's customers. And it's just a, it's a shame, but it's going to happen and it's always happened. And it's just, you know, it's just, uh, it's a really interesting time to, to try and figure all this stuff out. And by the way, yet makes another argument for why if we're in the business of marketing, 
or if we're in the business of technology that supports marketing, man, you should be on the side of making sure that Amazon, Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter are not the only places that exist on the web. You know, you we we need an open and free internet right. if for only this reason, because this makes everything much more uh, open to all of us. No, that's, anyway, a, yeah. that's a fantastic point. I, I, I appreciate that you just said that because it's important. Yeah. The other thing is, and we just covered this last week, where the Mayo Clinic is serving their educational uh, uh, content about medical, their medical expertise on Alexa, and they're working yeah. with that Alexa program. So here's an opportunity for brands. Like if you are let's say that you're Lincoln Electric, right? We love Lincoln Electric and they've got all these videos on how to welding and whatever. Well, if they're not being served via YouTube, well, there's an opportunity. You can go yeah. directly to to Amazon and say, hey, we've got all this. And we'd like to syndicate our content over there. And I think you're, you're already seeing that happen. And now you're going to see more of it because of this block. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 So there. Yeah. Google, Amazon. Yeah. yeah. All right. Our last uh, story that we'll cover here on the quick hits, and we can actually do this one quick. Maybe we can even do it in 280 characters or less. Uh, so saith Twitter as it tests the new 280 character limit. Um, if you missed that, just check your Twitter Twitter feed because plenty of people are out there boasting that they now have it. Um, and this uh, story we'll link to from the New York Times, of course, and they say Twitter's defining attribute has long been its brevity. Uh, 140 characters in a post and no more. That is is now set to change. Twitter said on Tuesday that it would test extending the text limit of a post on its service to 280 characters. In effect, that would double the length of the first two sentences of this paragraph. Those sentences, for the record, add up to 140 characters. Isn't that right or cute that they did that? Um, Twitter said that the goal was to eliminate what it viewed as constraints that kept people from tweeting more frequently. One significant barrier... <laughs> I just read that for the first time, and I'm just laughing. At that. I'm even saying it. Oh, my God. Um, one significant barrier, according to Twitter's internal research, has been the stringent limit on character count. Um, well, I, I, have a, I have a take on this. You have what a take on this. Okay, so uh, hashtag lame, hashtag blessed. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's the first thing. I'm, here's what I would do. No, I've got, I've got a hashtag I know, the struggle is real. Yeah, exactly. And so you, I know you have a take on this. Here's my quick take. I think for certain people on Twitter, they should actually drop it to 70. Just for certain people. <laughs> yeah. So that would help. Uh, what I would have done, honestly, is not open this up to everyone. I would have made it a paid offering. I would have absolutely made it a paid offering. You don't keep everyone using their 140, no problem. But if you want to have the pro version, just like you do on LinkedIn, uh, then you get the 280 or you get 420 or whatever you get, right? I don't care. It doesn't matter. But I would I would have opened a dollar it up a character way. per month. Yeah, I would <laughs> I would have opened it up to some some special offering if you have more to say or if you're a media so let's just say you're a media company or you're the president of the United States or whoever you are, then you could pay if you need have more to say. Fine, but everybody else gets the 140. I think this is a lost opportunity. Well, it may be they may not be lost. Uh, they they may decide because they haven't said that they're not going to do that. Um, they're just saying that they're testing it now, and so if they okay. get enough adoption on this thing, and they they could very easily do exactly that. I I I don't think they will. I think they're dopey and won't and won't do that. But but I they absolutely could. Um, yeah, my take on this, you know, is 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 itself maybe a tweetable moment, you know. Whatever you think about Twitter, it is now twice that, right? I mean, so if you think Twitter's a complete waste of time, it's now twice the waste of time. And if you think Twitter is wonderful, it may be now twice the wonderful. I, you know, to me, I, I think this has this is literally moving deck tear, chairs around the, yes. the the ship. I mean, it's it's quite frankly so non news and and so like okay. You know, the the only thing this is going to do is those that are already annoying on Twitter, and we know who those people are, is going to make them twice as annoying. That's my take. But you know, if you dig Twitter, if you're into it, um, then you're it maybe it maybe a, a, a lot more valuable of a social network for you. I just don't think it's going to be. Yeah, I wish that they would. Be, that's my take. Uh, yeah, no, I I think that's probably true, and I just wish yeah. that I wish that you know Twitter has policies that I don't think that they honor with people that really do some major damage that I wish that they would they would actually go and block people. 
I mean, I see it all the time, and it's not just with one person. Yeah. It's with yeah. many people that are doing horrible things on Twitter, and I don't know. They block some and don't block others, and I don't know what that policy is. They just don't have it then. If you're, if you're just going to play favorites, don't have it. So. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Now let's skip over to our deep coverage where we talk a little more in depth about some of the issues that have come up in the last week around the idea of content marketing. And this show, this episode, we have to cover what came out last week from that wonderful little, oh, that little content company in Cleveland that could, the Content Marketing Institute, because it's that time of year again, folks. Time to report on the findings of the annual content marketing survey. Uh, now in our eighth year, partnering with the wonderful marketing profs on this research, we are always excited to bring this every single year. So it is now the new release of the B2B um, um, content marketing research. Research is out um, and 2018 research. So bring it to me, Mr. Polizzi. What did you, yeah. what were the things that stood out to you? Would love to, first of all, uh, thanks to Brightco for sponsoring our B2B research again. Uh, they've been so supportive all through the years. And then the amazing Lisa Burton Beats and Nancy Reese for putting this together. They just do a fantastic job and they work with Ann Hanley, the folks at Marketing Pros for just, you know, putting out some amazing information. So I can't say anything without them because we wouldn't have this. Now, to the specific findings, and I've talked about this before because I talked about it in my opening keynote because we already had some of these top level findings. But I think that if you look at what successful uh, enterprises are doing, those that say they're successful at content marketing, 90% of those uh, that say they're successful are focusing on audience building. This is a this is a growing number. This is an important thing. And I know, you know, you and I... It kept, was also the biggest... It was the biggest growth from last year, too. Yes. I mean, it was you the and biggest I, jump. Yeah. I can't remember. I mean, I think it was... Uh, I can't remember who exactly it was, but we get flack from a number of organizations that say that you and I are way too focused on audience building. And for a reason. Because it's really important. <laughs> cough, Forrester. It, cough, cough, Forrester. Um, yeah, cough, well, cough. So th- this, is, <laughs> this is really important. This is where... We're so focused, you know, we're focused on the funnel and different types of content at different stages and all that. And that's all important. But if you don't have a focus on building an audience and seeing the benefits that reap from that, then you're not looking at the right thing. And I think that's what this research tells us more than anything else is to really um, focus on that. The second thing that I would say, and I want to get your take on it, is there's this finding that we asked, what... The, the, the successful companies are more apt to kill things than non-successful companies. So non-successful companies with content marketing, they sort of keep everything lingering. Okay, we're going to keep that e-newsletter going. We're going to keep that blog going. We're going to keep that Twitter account going. They just keep things going, and they don't put 100% into it. They don't commit to it, and they don't see any success. The successful companies are more apt to actually go out and say, look, that is not working. We want to focus our efforts in a different area and we're going to kill it. So that's, you know, I don't know, we talk about consistency all the time, but sometimes there comes to a point where you're doing too many things and you're not focused and you're not creating the best content or the best content experience for that audience. And you need to get rid of things that are taking away your attention to doing that. So I Absolutely. love I love that finding. So did yeah, you no, see anything a, in particular? It, well, I will picked up. Uh, that's the that's one of the ones that I picked up on for sure. Is because you know, I mean, you've heard me say this in as many workshops, which is you know, we have to decide what we're going to stop doing. Yeah. Um, and 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 that is you know, it is rare these days when I visit with a business that I'm actually coming in and talking to them about their first content marketing approach, right? Whether it's an initiative or whether it's figuring out the team or the strategy. It is very rare that I'm talking with them about doing something for the first time. It is most often, what is it we're going to kill or what is it we're going to stop doing in order to do something new? Um, And that is, you know, first of all, not every good content marketing plan remains a good content marketing plan. You know, just like everything in marketing, things change. And, And so that wonderful blog you know, six months, a year, two years, three years from now may not be as successful anymore and we need yep. to stop it. You know, m- most good media companies kill as many properties as they launch. 
Um, and you know, if you even look at, you know, something like Hollywood or television, the, the amount of content that they create versus what they actually keep and, and renew every television series or, or excuse me, every television season or every film season is, you know, is high. And so we, we just, you know, whether it's because we don't, we're not good at it or whether because it just stops resonating with an audience or because other things change. We need to be able to pivot and, 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 and change things, too. And, and that includes whether it's channel-oriented, whether it's a social media channel, or whether it's content and topic-related or technology-related. That's why it's so important for today's marketing team more broadly to look at the way that they're creating content as the first and foremost part of their strategy. I mean, this is what our argument is in the book, is that in today's world, like it or not, you're operating more like a media company. You you may not you may not choose to do it. You may actually by default just get stuck in this idea of creating more and more and more content for as many channels and mobile and social and internet of things and artificial intelligence and AR and VR and you may just get stuck in that with no strategy at all. Well, you're defaulting into an operation by media company instead of creating a strategic approach into one. And so you're, whether or not you like it or not, you're going to have to figure out what it is you're going to stop doing in order to figure out what it is you're going to put your, put more money in because you just, you're not going to get any more resources to be able to scale that way. That was the, that was the one thing that really, that, that really struck me. Um, and of course the, the continuing, the continuing saga of making it real in the, in the business, right. You know, where we're still look, I mean, it's growing, which I'm really glad. And it's actually getting documented. The strategy is getting documented and is getting, you know, uh, wonderfully put forward, but there's still a very high percentage of, of, of marketers that are just winging it, right. That are just doing this as that's part of what they do in their day to day, right? It's their side gig or side hustle in the job, right? So they, they deal with digital or they deal with social or they deal with the email newsletter. And then when they have time, they also do this content thing and it's not a documented, formatted, prioritized strategy in the business. And that's where we see the biggest hurt is where it's not, right? Where people are looking at it just as a, a side thing that gets done whenever somebody has time. And, and I, the, the research just illustrates that so beautifully. And those that are successful, take it seriously, invest in it seriously, document their strategy, know what success looks like, measure it. I mean, these are all does when you sort of hear them in hindsight, but you go, yeah, that's just, it's at all it is, is taking it actually as an approach as something that we want to do actively and really do it rather than just sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we do that. We do that too. Great points. I think the biggest thing, because we've been doing this now for, I think this one's eight years. And, and even before that, we, we sort of dabbled in some early trends in, the, in 2007, 2008, as we were just getting started as Content Marketing Institute. But what I love about this whole thing, and it really means a lot, that, that content marketing has become a thing. It is a real part of the marketing industry today. There are real jobs. This is a real practice area that there that you can build competencies for. And why I'm excited about the future of marketing and journalism, by the way, as we know that the business models for the media company side and the product company side are meshing together, coming together. It actually is the same business model if you look at it a certain way. And of course, we talk about this in the in the book at nauseum. But um, th- that's what I love about it because it, it really sets us straight and says, "Look, this is a thing. This is really important for you to get good at it." And we still have a long, long way to go <laughs> because still most companies are spending their money on advertising. Most of their money on advertising. Yeah, press releases and trade shows still yeah. happening. There might be a better way to do it. Yeah, that's Maybe. exactly right. That's exactly Maybe. right. So <laughs> go look at it in depth. Tons of stuff to, I mean, just huge. And then the other reports are coming, right? Yep. So B2C some of the other, is coming, nonprofits yeah. coming. We got them all. Yeah. They're all coming out. They're absolutely. Well, speaking of coming out, we have a wonderful sponsor that we should bring out here for the episode. Just a, a great, fantastic show sponsor absolutely. here. Absolutely. Today's episode sponsor, our good friends at Snap App. And they've got a great piece of content here. Today's buying committees are diverse. Millennials are already taking their seats among Generation X and baby boomers at the buying table. Really? Really? Is that a thing? Is that <laughs> really thing. happening? 
It's a thing. Oh, man, I'm ready to retire. Making navigating the already complicated (laughs) buying environment even harder thanks to their different preferences. Though this shift might seem minor, it greatly impacts how marketing teams operate, sales teams engage, and how purchase decisions are ultimately made. By the way, I have nothing against millennials. I'm just getting old. Snap App and Heinz Marketing recently conducted research to answer the question, how do different generations like to buy? Their report, The Millennials Are Here. (laughs) I love that. The Millennials Are Here. The Millennials Are Here. How generational differences impact B2B buying committees today. Look at the differences between the rising millennial buyer, their Generation X and Baby Boomer counterparts, and how B2B marketing and sales strategies can address the gaps between them. You need to go read this report. The millennials are here. You need to go read the report. CMI.media slash PNR203. CMI.media slash PNR203 or go to thisallmarketing.com. You can check it out. Uh, really super thanks to SnapApp for putting this great piece of content together. The millennials are here. Okay, that's it. In like a world it. where millennials <laughs> rule the roost, two men will try and get out. The millennials are here. <laughs> I just see, I just visualize, you know, the millennials are coming in and like you and I are playing like Galaga or yeah. something like that. Every time I see Generation X or something, I'm like, yeah, like we're, you know, I'm, I'm listening to some Bee Gees too. <laughs> All right. Whatever. Well, thank you to SnapMap for that Thanks, wonderful, Snapmap. wonderful sponsorship. Is awesome. Yeah. Um, and now, folks, it is time for your favorite part of the show. It is our rants and rave section where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that makes us feel. You know, like we're the first stone cutter, or something that makes us feel like we're the third stone cutter. And uh, I'm not even going to explain that. I'm just going to let you do a callback all the way to the intro to the show. Um, and so let's see. This time we have the lovely Joe Polizzi doing this old marketing. So he's going first with his rants and raves. Wait a Yay. second. I wasn't prepared for this. Is this really? <laughs> is this really happening? It's really happening. Yes, I have this old marketing. So I have two very quick raves. This first one was sent in to our good friend of the show, Mark Beppel. Uh, this is a Wall Street Journal article called PUBG is the hottest video game of 2017, and it isn't finished yet. Players un- Have you heard of this? Player Unknown's I, Battlegrounds? Have you heard no, of this? I don't know this. Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, which has sold 13 million copies since March, is available for PCs and now coming to Xbox One. The hottest video game right now spends no money on marketing, has raked in hundreds of millions of dollars in sales, and it isn't finished being developed. So huh. Player Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, or PUBG as fans call it, caught the video game industry off guard this year with his twist on the time-worn shooter genre. Rather than rack up the highest kill count, 100 players parachute onto an island with nothing and do whatever it takes, hiding included, to be the last one alive. There's like a thing in here where you can like run around with your underwear and a frying pan. If that's what you want to do, if that's what you think, it's it's really crazy. It resembles the Hunger Games, and players are snapping up a snapping up the thirty dollar game with these thirteen million copies sold since just March, uh, according to its publisher, Blue Hole Studio Inc., a privately held company in South Korea. Um, the reason why it is a rave is they basically they put out a test of the game. So an early playable version was created in a year for less than five million by a team of forty developers. And by the way, if you look at like Battlefront or Overwatch or these other games, they've got hundreds of developers and they spend a hundred million dollars doing it. So they basically put out a test game, and then they they scour all the uh, all the discussion forums and seeing what people are complaining about. And they just constantly watch the most complaints and the most ass and the wish, and they keep modifying their game. So the game is never complete. They just keep updating it every day. That's brilliant. I just thought was cool. I mean, that's basically what we've done with this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. We didn't know what the heck. We just put it out there. It's the real-time content ink model is what that is. That's exactly right. So, uh, I mean, basically... letting your audience tell you what to build, basically. So the founder says he attributes the success of Battlegrounds to its responsiveness to fans. Employees regularly mine fan forums to spot and solve their biggest gripes. I just thought that was cool. 
So anyway, really cool. Yeah, so really cool model. Thanks to Mark for sending this to me, and uh, we'll of course link this in the show notes. Uh, I just thought it was something that we could learn from, and you're you're not going to ship perfect. Seth Godin says this all the time. If you're waiting for perfect, <laughs> you, need to, you need to you need to say that sentence very slowly. Ship, <laughs> ship, ship, perfect. You know, ship. Don't if you're going to ship your pants, do you need to make sure that you ship perfectly? <laughs> And we've devolved into Beavis and Butthead, ladies and gentlemen. And close. No, I never, uh, never would have caught that one. Thank you. Yeah. See, uh, that's so well. Much. That's where my teenage head goes. Is right there. Is yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So the, my second quick, quick rave. Yeah. Is uh, it's an article in Folio magazine. Time Inc. launches People Perks paid membership program. I just wanted to call attention to it at five ninety nine cool. a month. Yeah. The program represents the company's latest push to decrease its dependence on advertising. Biggest basically memberships you cost six bucks a month or sixty dollars annually and include deals and discounts at a range of national retailers like Barnes and Noble, Best Buy, Staples and Walmart, as well as the opportunity to win exclusive celebrity and red carpet experiences like behind-the-scenes access to the Oscars and Tony Awards and passes to the Entertainment Weekly People upfront presentations. I, You know what? I don't know if it's going to work, Robert, but I just wanted to throw some love out there that says they're trying to do something that doesn't include advertising. They have good relationships with these brands. They have direct connection. I'm sure they've talked to them about what some of these subscribers want, and they put this People Perks package together. I hope it works for them, but even if it doesn't, at least they're trying. So yeah, there you go. absolutely. I love the experimentation. I love the experimentation, especially for a company like that that's been you know rumored to be for sale for so long and all of that. It's it's really keep, cool. That yeah, they, they're keep keep innovating. You got yeah, you have to absolutely. Um, all right, so I have a note, a correction, and then a bit of commentary. Ooh. Um, and so my note uh, is so perhaps maybe four or five episodes you heard me rave um, about a book, and the book was called Get Serious, is called Get Serious about Editorial Management for Business to Business Media Professionals, and it's a book by Howard Rausch, and and it's a I've loved the book, and that's why I raved about it because um, it doesn't have much to do with editorial as much as it does have to do with workflow and processes and measurement and really managing. Um, an editorial team. And I just think it's an amazing, it's not written for content marketers, but it's a perfect book for content marketers who are managing a team. Um, Howard heard the show, emailed me um, and said, hey, listen, I want to make a discount available to any of your listeners. Um, And so the book is now on Amazon and discounted for the next week and a half um, for uh, for 14 bucks, basically. So if you're interested, it's there. He did not pay for this. He did not any of that. It just he threw it out there, and I thought I'd throw it out because nice. I, I love the book. So Good. it's just there for that. Um, the correction I had from was from last week's uh, rant when I was going off on Nielsen, and I said the panel, uh, the number of panelists in the uh, sample was 6,200. I'm wrong on that. Um, I misread that number. It increased by 6,200 to 26,000. So uh, it went. It's not 6,200. It's 26,000 for television sampled um, for the Nielsen ratings for for television. We'll put a link into the actual show notes that 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 I'm sourcing that from. Um, so yeah, 24,000 um, is. But but my, I think my point is still valid. <laughs> so it's I not. Think so yeah yeah. I, I, it's not five thousandths of a percent. It's actually twenty four thousandths of a percent. So it's you know, take that with a grain. Now, I also had some people very kindly reach out to me and say, "Hey, you know, Nielsen will tell you that this actually is a statistically relevant way to measure television audiences." And I don't doubt that. I don't. I don't doubt that either. Um, I you know, I mean, we built a five hundred billion dollar industry over the top of it. I would think that someone along the way would have actually checked the statistical relevance of that. The only thing I'm complaining about is is that in today's world where we're trying to reach people through different devices, is it still the most statistically relevant way for us to do this given that sample size? Because I can remember when I was in television measurement and we were in cable TV and we measured a thing called VPVHs, which were viewers per viewing household. So it wasn't just the Nielsen ratings that we were looking at. It was sort of the ratings within the ratings, like how many people, we, you know, 
teenagers or, you know, moms or, you know, men 35 to 54 in that household were actually watching because that gave us a more, as we used to say in, uh, in, in cable land. And when I was selling cable TV, it wasn't spots and dots that we were selling. It was actually quality of audience. We were selling a higher percentage. So for example, if you're selling lifetime television, you're not selling the fact that lifetime television gets a 10th of the rating of CBS. You're selling it that at the, uh, of the people who watch lifetime, 95% of them are women or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the whole point is within that sample size, for example, when, you know, African Americans were woefully under, underrepresented. And so I watched my ratings quite literally in two weeks for African American men, for example, go from a very rep- respectable number to zero. And I called Nielsen and I say, why is that happening? And they say, oh, well, Larry died. The one guy in your Nielsen sample who was your African American representative. So is that a true story? That's a true story. It's an absolutely true story. And they said story. Larry died? No, he didn't. I mean, they didn't say Larry died. They oh, said I was they, like, they, they, yeah, it was, they didn't name him. They didn't actually tell me his name. But yeah, it's, it's, that is a true I'm story. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. That is a true story. I just felt um, really bad for Larry there. Yeah, like, no, I did. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, okay, I get so anyway, so my commentary, which feeds into that, um, is, and I, I spoke on this last week, and I'm just going to reiterate because the link, there was a wonderful, post that came out in media post uh, uh, website this week that sort of just put it all into perspective for me. So you heard me rant last week about the idea of using an owned media audience, uh, the audience that we're building using content marketing as a means of building our own panel of saying, hey, listen, you know what? We can do a check on this. We can actually build if, we, you know, it, as I said, whether it's five thousandths of a percent or 24 thousandths of a, of a percent of our total addressable market, we can actually use our owned media audience to do a double check on the media buying. So here's a great business case for content marketing, even as just a check on the data and fraud that's going on in the media that we buy. Because if we start advertising and pulling in owned media audiences from it, we can say, hey, is this a real person with a real email address with real demographics that we're really trying to reach? And that's an interesting business case for an owned media audience to do that. Um, Julie Fleischer at Kraft made this like a science at Kraft. And so just looking at that. What I'll point to is this article that came out of Media Post, which was only a third of ad executives trust their audience data. And it's a really fascinating article because it talks to the this research study that was done where only a third, 33% of ad executives say that they consider their audience insights completely trustworthy. And this was a survey of 197 advertiser and agency decision makers conducted uh, online by this company, Advertiser Perceptions. And they, there's a report called the State of Advertising Measurement Report, and it's, a, it's supposed to be a benchmark in the industry, et cetera, et cetera. Get also a third or even just slightly less than a third trust their first party data. So that's an interesting challenge there, given the thing that I just threw out there to say, hey, start using your audience database as a means of doing a check when only 30 percent of us trust the data that we actually have in our audience. Now, some of you out there at home are going, well, I trust my subscribed audience. I, I actually have built a pretty good email newsletter list. Right. Exactly. You trust it. So why don't the ad executives or why aren't our media buyers or why doesn't our business trust the data that we're pulling in with our subscriber database? It's a question we can ask and it's a problem, but quite frankly, we can solve really easily. We can start doing audience audits and it's something I've started to do a lot more with the clients and workshops that it's what we're going to be talking in masterclasses a little bit. This idea of actually not just a content audit, but an audience audit. So we can start deriving the value of the audience that we're building and start looking to increase the value of that audience over time. It's a really wonderful thing. And I think this this article makes a great sort of you know stake in the ground to say this is why we're doing it because only 30% of us trust the first party data that we have anyway. If we can move that needle forward, we can really build a lot of value for the owned media audience and thus... Even if we have to build value for our media buys, it becomes a great way to do that. Anyway, that's my. You know, that's that's a, it's a great point. We at CMI, we've been doing audits on our audience ever since the beginning. Yeah, um, absolutely. Did them with, with a formal auditing company, and then we went on to do our own publisher statement. Yeah, this is something that media buyers or excuse me, media companies do all the time, right? There yeah. are companies out there that do audience audits, right? That actually, and you get certified, and then you go, hey, this is how many you have. This is your, you know, this is what you say in your media kit. And thus, this is how valuable your audience is. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's doing that for brand audiences. 
Brilliant. Brilliant. If, if only somebody would have an idea around that. I, you know, I get them. Frick them, frick All right. This is the part of the show I think that you call the this old marketing example. Yes. So I'm, I'm Tell little, us, Joe Polizzi, about a this old marketing example I, I for the first like time I'm, ever. I feel like I'm sort of on quicksand here, so yeah. I might need some help. Okay. So you just make sure I get through this. Um, so my beautiful, beautiful wife gave me this example, and I think it's very, very fitting. It's called The Chagrin Documentary Film Festival Turns Town into Magnet for Movie Fans. This is available on Cleveland.com. So Chagrin is uh, East Side Township. Uh, in uh, in and around Cleveland, Ohio. And basically what happened is this woman, Mary Ann Ponce, wanted to do something uh, for her small town of Chagrin to get more people to come together around um, you know different concepts. And she's like, well, what if we, why can't we do a documentary films festival? So she rolled out this thing called the Chagrin Documentary Film Festival. And for eight years, the I'm reading from this, the brainchild of Ponce has turned Chagrin Falls into a magnet for film fans near and wide. They started the first year eight years ago with just a couple hundred people coming. And last year's festival attracted 10,000 people. For a, for a myriad of short and feature documentaries from around the world, most were of the films screened in makeshift theaters, like they did it in town halls, schools, churches, and libraries. And this year's it runs; it's running right around this time, Wednesday through Sunday, and they're doing it all around the city. And I just love it. I'm going to read what she says here. She says. The idea of taking something and turning it into something bigger, that's really what this festival is all about. And I always think, too, you know, Drew Davis has done some amazing work in this yeah, area about what, you know, how do you separate your town? You know, what is different? And she started to, to really focus on, you know what, there's these really amazing underrepresented documentaries, shorts and documentaries that, uh, you know, the, the bigger – uh, film festivals don't cover. And she said uh, she wanted to focus on really inspiring and forgotten local stories. And so that's what they're focused on, if you will. That was their content tilt. And so she's got all these, uh, so, you know, they could be award winning documentaries, but they're, you know, they're in Chagrin Falls and she's sort of become the home for these lost documentaries and done a great job of it. So I just think that. You know, it's it's sort of like, I mean, it's basically content marketing, but we're talking about an event. She's like, how do we differentiate ourselves? Who are we trying to target? How can we bring more people to Chagrin Falls? You're not going to do it by saying Chagrin Falls is this great place. Let's do something that separates us, that makes sense with what we bring to the table as a city, as a township. And that's what they were able to do. And I think they're supposed to get like over 18,000 people or something. It's wow. Really small. That's yeah, amazing. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is just... Something that they decided to do, put a little bit of passion behind it. They differentiated enough, and and here you go. You've got yourself a film festival. So don't say you can't do it. Minimal resources, they made it happen. So that's amazing. I love that example. That's that wonderful. Great? And by the way, her research, her background was in accounting and finance. She had no <laughs> film contacts in the first year. That's so, amazing. There you go. That's wonderful. I love that story. What a great story. And I, oh my gosh, I, I I I I so want to be from Chagrin. I mean, what a great name for a town. I want to be from Chagrin. Yeah, listen, listen to it, it's something. It says it's uh, 80 films this year from 50 directors around the world. And it's all around the city. Cause, so can you imagine if you were a small business in Chagrin Falls? This woman is probably the hero of the city right now. Oh, man. Bringing in people yeah. and keeping that Almost city. like Mr. Polizzi bringing in, you know, 10,000 people into uh, Cleveland every year. Who? Mr. Pulitzer, you know that guy, that orange guy. But that guy doesn't ever do a this old marketing example. That guy's <laughs> worthless. So. <laughs> oh, thank you, sir. So what yeah. do you got uh, on the docket here? Come I'm on. home this week, actually, which is lovely because I have a lot to do. I have lots to write, lots to create, lots to catch up on. So no traveling this week. I, I, I'm getting ready. I'm getting the masterclass ready. I'm getting a few other things ready for our tour because starting in November, I'm sort of nonstop on the road. Um, and But this week, yeah, I'm at home. How about you? Good for you. Uh, tomorrow, I actually speak at a nonprofit event here in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm, uh, if you know who David Pogue is, I I'm do the, know David I'm the Pogue, other keynote. Course. So David Pogue is keynoting, and I'm the other one. A little short history fact. David Pogue was our first keynote at Content Marketing World 2011, but he canceled. So I'm going to make sure I tell him when I see ha, him. Ha, ha. I'm like, Mr. Pogue, you don't remember me, but... 
you know, <laughs> Mr. You, Pogue, Mr. Pogue, but you became <laughs> Kevin Smith. Uh, Just so <laughs> coming to go video, video. Yeah, exa- exactly. Uh, and then later this week, I'll be with uh, lots of friends and family at uh, Marketing Profs B two B. So I'll be ah uh, yes, to, that's the uh, the one I didn't get the invite going, to again this year. To, yeah, going to, I'm gonna I'll see Anne and I will I will send you regards. Yes, I'll see what the invitation got lost. Tell her I am the Susan Lucci of B two B marketing <laughs> forum. <laughs> I. I'm, it's uh, it's it's now it's kind of a running thing to see how many years I cannot actually get invited. All right, you well, really anyway. honestly no uh, to be honest. Did you submit what? a proposal? No, of course I didn't submit a proposal. I'm not like all proactive and like professional well, and stuff. I, I mean that you know that would have been like did. I yeah. did submit. So shame on you. Okay, yeah, I, I'm only teasing. I'm only, and Anne knows I'm only teasing. I, I, but yeah, but there's a little truth there. Okay, I, but I, I'm. Don't you know who I am? <laughs> good. All, All right, right. It's, let's get the heck yeah, out of here, shall we? Yeah. That is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose. We are signing off. Um, and if you like this episode number two hundred and three, uh, won't you leave us a kind review on iTunes? We do love those kind reviews. And if you haven't considered subscribing, I have no idea what you're doing still listening. Really, quite frankly, two hundred and three episodes. I mean, come on. come on. But if you haven't subscribed yet, do iTunes or Stitcher.com. And if you do any of those things, leave us a review. Or if you subscribe, hashtag us up, won't you? This old marketing on the Twitter. You've got two hundred and eighty characters now. What are you waiting for? Um, we'd love to thank you personally for that. That's how much we appreciate you as a little subscriber on this little podcast. And of course, story ideas, story ideas, story ideas. We lean, we need them. We love them. Tweet us up, won't you? Hashtag this old marketing um, or this old marketing examples too. And if you've got a question, you got an email, you want to send it. This old marketing at contentinstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes as we go to publish on Monday night. And of course, in the show, post in all their replete Technicolor glory at thisoldmarketing.com on Saturday. Until next week, everybody, remember it's your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.